Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Kate Agnew. I'm the Marketing and Communications Director at Dietitian Connection. And today we're talking to Alice Zaslavsky, who has been described as a force of nature by Nigella Lawson. And I couldn't agree more. Um, Alice, aka Alice in Frames, is an author, chef, teacher and food literacy advocate. She's the culinary correspondent for the ABC, which basically got me through um, meals during lockdown. Um, Founding creator of Phenomenom, former MasterChef contestant and television host, food judge, creator of the family-friendly podcast, Nomcast, and her latest book in praise of veg hits shelves very soon. So Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kate, for that intro. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm wrapped to be here and chatting to your people. <laughs> you have the best job titles I've ever come across, and I know, but I know you worked really hard for them, but they are just <laughs> awesome. I'm so jealous. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you, um, you, get, you only get one life, so um, better make it worthwhile and everything that I do, I guess um, it's a bit of a working hard or hardly working situation. Um, and some of them I just made up and the more you say it, the more it just sticks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm seriously so jealous, um, but I'm actually really in awe of what you're doing as well, Alice. Um, let's say raising the profile of vegetables and your commitment to teaching kids about food, food history, and of course, food literacy. Like I'm really excited to dive into that during this podcast. So exciting. <laughs> Okay, so let's go back. Nigella Lawson describes you as a force of nature, which is very well said. So tell me a bit about your story and about what seems to be a very colourful career so far. Um, well, you can only imagine my surprise at that. Um, when I got that back from, from the publisher, I, I just got an email with like lots of exclamation marks saying, this is what, you know, this is what Nigella said about you. And I just, um, just about fell to the floor. I was so um, f- surprised and, and flattered. But I guess... Um, how would I describe my story and, and why it's a, a bit of a force? I think I've always in my life thought about um, everything propelling forward and everything that I do being purposeful and meaningful. Um, even if it's taking a day off, that's purposeful and meaningful, you know. So um, my life's, his, life's history is that we are from the former Soviet Union, from Georgia, um, in the former USSR, and I came to Australia as a kid. And coming to a country of abundance, um, and particularly coming from a family that loved food, we absolutely embraced everything that the Australian food culture had to offer. I will never forget the first time that I realized um, how to eat with chopsticks. I was so proud of myself, um, you know, eating tropical fruit coming from the from eastern europe you know that that's always exciting and i still i'm still excited when i find a new ingredient to try um you know 
there's a, a new apple variety that's got a red flesh that that's super cool. There are so many melons. There's an amazing melon that I've tasted um, at Hawk Connections, which is the big sort of horticulture conference called the PL de Sapo, which is like an alligator skin melon um, or Santa Claus melon, otherwise known, I think, in the States. I've and never heard of that before. It's so cool. So, you know, and I love, I love, first of all, I love tasting it, but second of all, I love telling other people about it. So when you do come across a PL de Sapo, what you need to know, and I, and I found this out from the actual seed, um, the breeder, I suppose, of this melon, is that you look at the base of it and you look for the, the sort of other colour um, sort of stem point and it needs to be the size of a $2 coin and that's when you know that it's ripe. So, you know, for, for Americans, it's got to be like the size of, um, you know, a pretty, like a quarter. Yeah, nice. So <laughs> make sure that it's that size and then you'll know that you've got a ripe melon. So, um, look, I digress. I could talk about that all day. But uh, where I found myself in my career was that I was a teacher and I was teaching, I was the head of humanities, so teaching history and geography, and I was also teaching English. And I was also finding opportunities to teach about food, firstly because I love food, but also because I found that for the students, they would always engage more with the subject matter, whether it was the plague or ancient Egypt um, or you know, process writing, if it was through the lens of food, because we all eat, right? And we all yeah. want to find delicious food. And we are all curious, even like when something grosses us out, we want to know more about that even. So um, the more that I did it, though, the more I realized that there was an opportunity to make it a bigger thing. So I pitched an elective to my heads of school that was a food and culture elective. And they said, that's a really great idea, but you're an English teacher, uh, you know, hums, you're not a food science teacher, you don't have the skills, and we don't think you'll get the numbers. So I said, I'll show you. you know, maybe this is where the horse challenge of comes accepted. In. Yeah, challenge accepted. That's right. So I went off and did a chef at home course at William Angus every weekend. Um, it's a sort of like an amateur um, course taught by a Michelin star chef, Walter Trupp. And he, um, you know, between him and all the other research that I was doing, I just got absolutely obsessed, even more than I was. And at the end of that course, they were holding auditions. You know, we were packing up and they were holding auditions for MasterChef. And I figured, okay, well, I've got the skills now and if I want the numbers, all I need to do is be on TV for an episode, my kids will see me and then I'll, I'll uh, come back and they'll all want to do my elective. So it was really, it really was very purely that and um, <laughs> I, I went for longer than an episode. I, I left just before finals week. You know, I got an immunity pin, did pretty, pretty well on my stint on MasterChef almost a decade ago and when I came off the show, um, I had opportunities and, and people sort of knocking down my door offering me um, work experience in restaurants. Um, you know, I did a little stage at Attica, I, uh, which is you know, one of the top restaurants in Australia, uh, if, you know, one of the most recognised in the world, I'd say, in Australia. Um, I went to a lake house at Dalesford and spent some time with one of my favourite people, Ulla Wolftasker, who's, um, again, another incredible chef here in Australia. And um, I also was... Uh, very lucky to audition and get the role to host a little show called Kitchen Whiz, which was really funny. It's a game show about food for kids. And I watched it when I was teaching because they were five seasons in. And I remember watching it and thinking, I could do that. Like, that looks really fun. I could do that. Next thing you know, I am doing that. And I, there were moments on set where I would pinch myself and think, this is, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is so cool. And then um, I also had a publisher approach me, the same publisher that publishes Where's Wally and Miffy and know some of the best kids books in Australia um, in the world I suppose and they said you know we saw that you're writing a book 
about food for kids. Have you got a publisher and how long till you're finished? I knew that I wanted to write a book for kids, but I was, you know, that's all I had. <laughs> I just knew I wanted to do it, but there's nothing to motivate you more than signing on the dotted line. So that's yeah. what I did. And uh, Alice's Food A to Z was born. And then from that, you know, I had many opportunities to visit kids at school and, and um, find connections again through food. I also, on the adult side, because I, I do think, and this is something that I really want to kind of stress early on, I think it's really important that we engage the whole family. So when I talk to kids about food, I need to be able to talk to them through their parents and I need to talk to their parents through the kids as well. So everything that I do is very much through the teacher's lens, but there's nothing that can motivate um, learning like learning together. So, um, you know, in, in terms of my work with adults, I was the food editor at you know, Melbourne's Premier Lifestyle Glossy. So I was a restaurant critic, I suppose, and, and writing about food every week um, in, in that capacity. And then I was then um, found myself with an opportunity to create my food and culture elective, to, to put it in simple terms. I was asked the question by the growers of vegetables in Australia. Um, it's uh, Horde Innovation is the, the um, organisation. They're the, the not-for-profit research and development organisation that, that represent growers. And they said to me, what would you do to make vegetables cool for kids? And I knew that, um, firstly, it is possible. I think vegetables are super cool. I just think that they've had a bad rap. Um, and it's time for that to stop. But, but second of all, um, this is... The, the, the best place to encourage new ideas and have spongy learning come back is still in the classroom. So let's create something for the classroom that's meaningful for students, valuable for teachers, and just plain cool. And that's where Phenomenon was born. And um, I've heard you tell the story as well about your food history classes where oh, you had yes. a <laughs> spit roast going and whatnot. How cool! I oh, wish you yeah. were. I wish you were my teacher way back when. <laughs> I love that. That's still one of the biggest compliments that people can give me. Um, and yeah, I think that uh, the best teachers are the ones that have fun with what they do and still are learning. So for me, um, when I was teaching history and when I had when I was in charge of the humanities budget I took full advantage of that so we had these feasts it was funny because the the former head of humanities who left just before I took the position on he kept saying because we had these sort of ancient days and medieval days and he kept saying I wish that I could do something like a feast and you know maybe have like a, a spit um you know spit roast and I um I took it to heart and I was like, well, why don't you? So Literally. <laughs> Literally. And I had my, my then boyfriend, now husband, he would come to the school first thing in the morning to set up the coals and, you know, get this big. So we had a, a pig on a spit for, um, for medieval day and I was all dressed up in my like, um, big, <laughs> like medieval, clothing. medieval gown, exactly. <laughs> And um, and then for Ancients Day, I was dressed as you know Cleopatra, might be Cleopatra, and I had a big lamb on a spit. So it was you know different protein, but it could have easily been pumpkins. You know, we could have yeah. put other you know put a veg on veg on the spit, and um, yeah, that was really really fun. And again, when I catch up with students when they sort of message me on various social media to say, you know, I remember you, and I, I still think about memories from school. It's those memories that they remember right? It's not yeah. that time that you taught me. Um, I didn't, but look, that's not that time that you taught me cal calculus, right? <laughs> it's the, food yeah. is evocative and it sticks. So let's 
take that as an opportunity to, and it's not just um, the food memory that sticks, but it's the learning around that memory that mm. sticks too, right? So they'll remember um, the, the diet of ancient Egyptians forever. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it's pretty um, it's pretty spectacular that you obviously you inspired a lot of kids during your teaching days, and now you're able to take that to a whole new level and reach far more children through Phenomenon. And then also us adults, we love what you're doing for veg. Dietitians particularly love what you're doing for vegetables. So that's really exciting, Alice. Thank you. Um, okay, we have to talk about your latest book, In Praise of Veg. <laughs> Tell me about the book. What was the inspiration for writing it? Yes, we do. My publicist will be very upset if I don't. So, yeah, uh, my, my new book, In Praise of Veg, is a reference book about vegetables, um, but I try to keep it um, as fun and accessible as possible. I think that a lot of the writing around vegetables um, can be a little bit worthy, a little bit too health and nutrition focused um, and it's not accessible to the common um, cook, the common consumer. And to be honest, I also think that um, there is a big stigma around healthy food for most people, unless you're already part of that worried well. Um, If somebody says to you, hey, um, have a try of this healthy smoothie, um, straight away the expectation of flavour goes down. And that's not just empirical knowledge, that is research. Um, So research back. So um, compare that to, hey, why don't you give this um, delicious, zingy, fruity smoothie a go, something like that, you know. And I also think that some of that um, health speak is beyond people expecting it to taste worse. It's inaccessible because it medicalizes food, right? And I am a big believer in food as medicine, but I think that we teach people to listen to their bodies and to feel how food makes them feel rather than tell them how they should feel when they eat it. Yeah. I always, um, if you Google like healthy salad, you'll get like um, a lady eating the most boring salad ever, oh, like laughing at their salad. Yes. And that, that is just the perfect <laughs> representation of the stigma, right? Amen. Exactly. And I laugh at salad. I like laughing at salad is probably one of my biggest skills for photography. <laughs> if you Google me, you'll see me laughing at salad all the time. But Food brings me joy and I want to bring that sort of food to people. So that's what In Praise of Veg is about. It's about vegetables but not as you know it. So there might be um, fennel wedges, you know, deep fried with some panko, yum, but also there might be a shaved raw beet salad with um, hung labna that's rolled in different spices and, um, and looks absolutely spectacular when you bring it to the table. So it's about... Um, finding people where they are, meeting them there. So you might have a client who is only eating white and brown food. Um, and I say you might, you definitely have clients who are only eating brown and white food. And chances are that's probably to do with um, comfort and security because that's what they grew up with. That's what they know how to cook. Um, and it comes out of a packet. So how do we meet them? How do we reach them and give them the opportunity to feel like um, they have permission to open their minds. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do is remove as many barriers as possible that are in people's way that are keeping them from cooking. Because no matter what you cook, it's 
always going to be better than what you um, open, you know, what you get out of a box. So um, that at its heart, I think is what I do. And it, it drives me, especially with things like um, my work with ABC News Breakfast, the recipes that I put out for, for that platform certainly are very much of the mind that the people that are watching that television program are probably, there are definitely going to be foodies, but the people that I want to encourage to cook those recipes are the ones that have never baked yeah. or have um, have three things that they cook every week. I want them to to be permitted to, to, to permit themselves to try something else. And, and in doing so, they might say, hey, that was easier than I thought. Maybe I can do that more often or et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I'm definitely up on my soapbox about that. But I think that we as the um, gatekeepers of knowledge and of permission, we need to be setting our egos aside and not trying to impress each other. I think that's yeah. sometimes a real pitfall of the way that we speak about food, of, of the content that we put out and of the recipes that we write. We're trying to impress each other fob that right off you know let's yeah. bring people in let's make it easier for them yeah we we talk a lot about that about that a lot um as dietitians with the science like you have to peel it back for someone that Oof. doesn't have the science background and it's actually yes. a skill I imagine it's a skill for you um as an exceptional chef to be able to be to say okay this is a four ingredient omelet <laughs> And we're going to make it simple and we want to make it accessible for that person and focusing on the the person who's watching it, not your, not your colleagues and what they might think, right? Yes. Well, I think I'm lucky. Um, firstly, you know, in, in America, anyone that cooks is a chef, but in Australia, you need to be uh, qualified to, to be referred mm -hmm. to as a chef. So mm -hmm. I very much sit in the home cook camp, you know, alongside people like Nigella who will insist I'm not a chef, I'm a cook. Um, and I think, again, that gives me the opportunity and me the permission to take shortcuts myself and to, to make it easier. But I actually have spent a lot of time in that decade up on stage with some of the top chefs in the world. And what I have found across the board is that when you're at that level, you are not no longer feeling like you need to impress people or um, prove yourself. So simplicity is probably one of the hardest things, right? So, you know, mm. take take two of those ingredients out of that omelette, you can make a two-ingredient omelette and it's going to be delicious because you're using marinated goat's cheese. That's yeah. exactly right. using marinated goat's cheese and eggs and you're using the oil from the goat's cheese as your fat and then you're, you know, scrambling your eggs in there or if you want to do scrambled eggs with the feta yum or you can um, make your kind of crepey omelette and then pop some of those blobs of feta on top and they'll melt once you roll that omelette over. And tell you what, Kate, who says that cooking has to be complicated? And, you know, from a dietitian's perspective, I think that um, probably when people serve that up, they'll already think, hmm, what else can I put with that next to that? Um, yeah. It's probably, hopefully it's going to be green, you know, something zingy. Um, what kind of bread is going to suit that? Something crunchy, bit of sourdough maybe, you know, like it, people build on that themselves, but um, let's break it down, keep it simple. Science communication in this day and age, and, and a lot of research papers are coming out talking about the fact that the public facing messaging needs to be simplified. The yeah. simpler, the better. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, actually, on that note, I'm, I'm keen to know who you sort of, when you were writing in Praise of Veg, who did you have in mind as the sort of typical reader? 
That is an excellent question. Um, so I had a couple of people in mind because I think that this is the sort of book that, that can go from someone who's an avid cook because it kind of gives them um, some things that you might not have thought about doing with, um, you know, some challenges like a carrot souffle, for example. Um, but then I also really wanted to rope in the people that aren't cooks that don't consider themselves cooks but are open to learning and I actually think that this generation of people coming through so young people are the ones following me on on socials on on Instagram I'm getting sort of 20 something um mostly women but you know some some guys as well uh, messaging me saying hey I tried that thing that you did um that's really cool and asking me you know really basic questions that like gladden my heart (laughs) I love that stuff and say oh you know I bought, a, I bought a kohlrabi the other day because I saw it on your Instagram, you know, and I'm, I'm going to cook it and that's really cool. So those people, um, so young people perhaps just moving out of home or just trying new things, people that love to go out to eat because part of the book as well, um, it, it has over 50 of the, the most interesting chefs to me talking about what they would do with certain vegetables. Yeah. So just like little inspiration points um, that I just love. And beyond that, I also have like a sleeper demographic um, and they're my Judy's or my Janet's and they are um, our mums and, and our dads as well. So people in there, let's say 50 to 80 bracket, because I get emails from, from I had an, an email from a lady in her 80s the other That's day so saying cool. I'm, not on the, yeah, I'm not on the social media but I, but I watch you on News Breakfast and, um, and I want you to know that I'm trying to cook more with vegetables and when's your book coming out? It's amazing. And so for them... They have been cooking all their lives. So what can I show them that they haven't done yet? Or where can I meet them where they're already comfortable and then push them a little bit beyond that? So, yeah, yeah it's, it's for everybody. Um, and I know that people say that all the time, but I really think that it's for someone that will pick it up and read a recipe step line by line. It's for someone who will pick it up and read a quote from a chef and go, that's a really great idea. I'm going to give that a riff. It's even for people who are spreadsheet focused because I've got a vegetable matrix where it's like, do you feel like light and bright? This is what you've got. This is how long it's going to cook. Like a little sort of list. I love those pages because I find myself referencing that. It's, it's pretty good. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of work, but I'm really glad that I did it because now I'm already going into my Dropbox. Like I can't wait for the hard copy because I'm going into my Dropbox to access that matrix because I, I can't remember how long to cook stuff for, but it's like, oh yeah, that's how I do it. (laughs) That is actually, that is such a genius idea. It's really cool. The food matrix part of the book yeah yeah well I really the way that I envisage that is hopefully um merching that and turning it into like a fridge magnet or something but yeah. I will I will not be bothered if you go and photocopy it and stick it up on your fridge wall poster <laughs> Do it. Do it. Yeah. exactly that's right <laughs> that's so cool um and Alice I from my understanding the book kind of really embraces embraces ugly veg as well oh, is that yeah. right Definitely, definitely. We were very much guided by uh, the produce that we had. So we shot in Sydney. Um, SIF Produce were very much suppliers for us of some incredible, beautiful, real-looking veg, uh, but also the illustration. So it's fully illustrated um, by the same illustrator that did Phenomenon. And her brief for this was to really make the veg look alive, give it texture, give it life. And vegetables that are alive, 
aren't the prettiest. They've got the gnarly bits. They've got the the vibration to them that's still from the soil. And I think that um, hopefully that's what comes through for me in the illustrations. They're really vibrant and alive. I think um, a lot of chefs, food security advocates, um, dietitians will really appreciate that part of the book. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I I don't even, I guess I I didn't... um, I did maybe a little bit, but, uh, but to hear it in those terms that that's really cool as well. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. 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 Especially in this time where we're talking about food insecurity is actually becoming an issue for a lot of families, right? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, um, the fetishization of perfect food, yeah. right. Only makes it m- more inaccessible for, for people who can't afford that sort of food. Mm. And, and my family included, when we first came to Australia, we, um, had absolutely nothing. You know, we came from you know, mum and dad had to leave everything behind. Yeah. You know, we um, it took them a little while to to get work. So uh, my childhood was very much the mum would get the cheap kind of root veg um, to the side of the grocery store and cook all of that up into a borscht or a vegetable soup, and that would be my afternoon tea. You know, and um, I still I still make pots of that. And, or she'll, when, when we can see each other, I, she'll, you know, give me a pot of that. And first of all, that's like a hug in a mug. But second of all, you know, it's, and second of all, that is an opportunity to get, make sure that we get all, you know, like eight serves of veg in, in one go. But third of all, those vegetables are tastier too. You know, that, that stuff that's to the side of the store, it's the ripest, it's yeah. um, the, the nobliest, so maybe it's been bug-eaten. The bugs eat the best stuff, right? So let's, re, let's reframe that. Let's yeah. um, remind people that ugly veg, um, ugly is beautiful. Ugly is beautiful and tastes good. <laughs> so on that note, um, as a dietitian, and um, I think a lot of dietitians we are on the eat more vegetable train. We spend a lot of time talking to the public about it. I still think we have a lot of work to, um, I guess, inspire people to meet there. Well, I, I say, I think two and five, but it's actually higher for, mm. for optimum nutrition. Um, how can we as dietitians channel your talent, Alice, to make vegetables sexy and exciting? Because I think you do that very well. Well, I've seen some fantastic uh, online profiles of dietitians and nutritionists doing that themselves. I think the first thing to do is to just be a good role model. Um, You know, practice what you preach, walk the talk and um, put content out there of yourself cooking with this stuff and just like watch your language around it. Don't, don't, um, Try not to sit in that camp of, you know, and it's all of the flavonoids that you're going to get, you know. It's the vitamin B6 that's really going to give you the, it's like, no, no. Just make delicious food, um, connect with it, you know, find the joy in it yourself and it oozes out of you and it um, bounces out of your face. I think that's, um, that's such an esoteric way to give an explanation or an answer to you though, Kate. So some real solutions, some real kind of um, talking points that you can address is talk to your clients about the vegetables that they do like. Or, you know, if you're up for a challenge, put your therapist hat on for a brief moment and talk to them about the vegetables that they don't because chances are it goes back to um, childhood. And it goes back to a really traumatic time for a lot of 
people, their inner child is hurting because somewhere down the line, someone either forced them to eat it or they, um, you know, they, they couldn't leave the table until their vegetables were eaten. Their vet, but, you know, they weren't delicious vegetables. They were overboiled. They were um, under seasoned. They weren't, it's not the vegetables that these people don't like. It's the way that those vegetables were cooked. Yeah. So um, let's remove that um, fear and phobia around those ingredients and offer them solutions or different ways that they can cook with it. Even, you know, um, offering vegetable snacks in your clinic. <laughs> mm. And I don't mean snacks. I think um, we, my husband and I talk a lot about the, the notion of snacking and especially for kids how snacking might actually be detrimental in terms of encouraging them to have positive food habits. Mm. But um, what I mean by snacking is like smaller sized versions of food that you'd eat for bigger meals. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't mean like yeah, chips. Mind you, some chips are delicious and I will <laughs> happily have um, some fantastic, there's a, there's a great Spanish chip brand that I absolutely love. Um, so yeah, I think that hopefully gives you a little bit of like an actionable kind of conversation yeah. to have. Yeah, right? Um, yeah, I'm yeah. just reflecting on my own experience growing up. My mum always steamed veggies. She never she never added olive oil and like, and I'm wondering, is it is it giving people permission to add, add olive oil, add butter, add flavor to it? Like, I think that's what you do so well. You make the vegetable the hero of the dish and that's yes. getting us to eat more vegetables. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that word permission comes up a lot, doesn't it? It has come up a lot mm-hmm. in this conversation. And yes, absolutely. Um, it doesn't stop being healthy just because you have drizzled it with, well, certainly not because you've drizzled it with olive oil, because if anything, for, for some vegetables, that's helping the absorption of the yes. nutrients, right? <laughs> yeah. so, but um, for a lot of people, and actually it's, it's generational. So the generation, you know, in the seventies, eighties that grew up with low calorie, low fat, um, kind of looking at, at that yeah. sort of diet messaging, diet culture, those people are our mums, if not our grandmas. And so we've got a compounding intergenerational trauma, let's face it, around vegetables um, and around the way that they should be delivered. So, but but for your mum, she did that because she thought that she was nourishing you, right? Like that's the place that it was coming from. So I think that um, if you reframe that and say, oh, she wasn't trying to poison me (laughs) with those steamed (laughs) green beans that just were squeaky and, and bland, yeah. Um, she was doing her best, but hey, next time that you know, next time Mum comes around, why don't I um, saute, you know, blanch the beans, toss them in a bit of butter, or you know, if Mum's still um, not on the butter train, which chances are she's not. I can see it in your face; she's not. Um, so, <laughs> lemon zest, garlic, yeah. olive oil, and a good crack of pepper and some salt toss those blanched beans and they are zingy and zippy and delicious, magnificent. Exactly. And so, and how exciting would it be for you to change your mum's mind? Because chances are steaming those vegetables wasn't so fun for her either. No, I love watching her. I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a crazy person with the olive oil and I love watching her face when she eats my roast vegetables (laughs) that are just completely saturated olive oil. And she, um, I can tell she enjoys it. (laughs) She enjoys it. Of course she 
he does. Of course yeah. he does. And because um, not only is the olive oil a good fat, it's also coating the vegetables and helping them access the heat um, yeah. and helping the, bo- the bottom, you know, the contact of the faces of the vegetables with the bottom of the, the pan. And so they're getting a really nice caramelization, bringing out the natural sugars. You know, yeah. there's a actually um, hedonism and health should not be mutually exclusive. Mm. There we go. So hedonic, you know, um, joy, uh, flavor, greed, language around food, yeah. greedy language around food and, and healthy nutrition-based language around food should not be mutually exclusive because yeah. at, at its crux, actually, nutrition, flavor is nutrition, right? Our, our flavor receptors are trained to enjoy the foods that give us nourishment. So we mm. need to get people back to that. Yeah, I go. love that, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> Quote of the episode. Yeah. Well, we had a, so as part of Phenomenon, which is a, a digital toolkit for teachers, you know, we created some springboard videos. So one of the videos was with an academic um, from Queensland, Eugenie Rora, who's a, um, he studies taste um, and taste receptors, so super tasters and, and the like. And so he's the one that, that kind of, completely you know cracked my mind open talking about the fact that these nutrients you know because when you eat something nourishing you're satisfied faster right so how do we get people back to that and recognizing Mm. that i i love um I love your quote. It's on your website. I'm going to read it. I hope you don't mind. Mm. Learning to understand food, the way it makes our bodies feel, how it connects to the world around us should be just as important as learning to read and write. That is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's, um, it's not just, it's not just poetically kind of minded and it's not a pipe dream. I think that not only for schools, but for families as well, for parents, it's just something that is going to arm and equip your children for life. Mm. Um, you might not need calculus. You might not. Um, it's every day you need to speak language, right, to, or, or to sign, to communicate with people. Every day you need to eat food to nourish yourself. So how do we teach kids to be able to um, see what's in front of them and um, make, I'm not going to say make better choices. Yeah. Make better choices with what they eat, with um, learning to cook for themselves, with just having access to that knowledge. Mm. Yeah. And was this sort of the, the reason behind the birth of Phenomenom and that whole project? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Phenomenon really is the, um, the realisation of that food and culture elective. Mm. But I think that people get caught because they see that it's a food literacy tool and they think that it's just for food science teachers mm. or just for home economics teachers. Phenomenon is a tool for teachers of every subject. So for mm. an English teacher, for a maths teacher, for a science teacher, for an art teacher yeah. to engage with their students through the lens of food. And we've already talked about the fact that kids are already more engaged when food is the topic. The food literacy is the bonus that comes through. So if we can make food literacy an interdisciplinary cross-curriculum priority, make it as important a consideration as studying for NAPLAN, 
<laughs> which, you know, for our overseas visitors and listeners, it's the um, numeracy and literacy test that, that kids study for. And stress and, over you know, as well. Learning and stress over. Why? Why? When it, it, is it necessary for you to be able to write an essay? Maybe for some people, maybe if you're going to be a journalist or if you're going to have to write a, 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 an, a, some, a, a letter to an employer, that's, that's a good skill to have. But isn't it just as important, if not more important, that you learn to nourish yourself? Totally. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure you could make you could make a stronger point than that. We eat <laughs> every day you. and it's important. Every day. Every day. And it's the choices that we make with the things that we put in our mouths doesn't just impact but those choices don't just impact us. They impact the people around us, but they also more broadly impact the planet um, mm. through, you know, concerns uh, you know, climate change, you know, sustainability, the environment, around um, food insecurity, as you say. Mm. So teaching kids about hunger, for example, you know, mm. um, what does it mean to give back? How do we teach them empathy through the lens of food? There are just so many amazing conversations that we can have because we're already meeting them somewhere where they're comfortable and familiar. Yeah. And yeah. maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes meeting them in discomfort too, because for, for some kids and actually for a lot of kids, there is already discomfort around food. Um, and I think as teachers, actually, we've got a great opportunity to be the neutral ground to help them work through those issues before they get to be um, food averse adults. Because mm. <laughs> there are plenty out there, plenty it, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. So you must really enjoy it when you, um, whether it be a kid or an adult, when you see them try a new vegetable or something new for the first time and all of their preconceived ideas about it <laughs> go out of the you, window. You know it. It actually makes me feel really emotional thinking about those yeah. points in my life where I've seen that happen. We had um, a couple of kids on Phenomenon. So as part of the videos, we had actual actual child actors. So, um, And what we didn't realise is that we cast a couple who were very, very food-averse. And um, one of them in particular was um, food-averse through having had surgery as a baby and so it was a textural issue. And so all of those things to work through, you can imagine we only had a couple of weeks of filming, um, but they went from eating no vegetables at all to trying eating cucumber, to trying corn, to actually, you know, being open and their, you know, their parents have emailed us. Actually, all the parents of the kids on that show have said that they are eating more vegetables and, and more trying new, new foods more than they have ever done in their lives. So that's just like a small example of, you know, how a couple of weeks of exposure because that's what it comes back to. I don't need to tell you and I don't need to tell your listeners what the kind of primary um, three ways to move people past food aversion or neophobia are. And that's, you know, exposure, repeated. That is role modelling. And that is non-food-based reward. So even the reward of learning something new is enough for some people. The reward of sitting with their family, of having attention from their parents is enough. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot of people who are going to want to check out Phenomenum. Can it be accessed mm. by people who aren't Everybody, teachers? Everybody, absolutely, cool. yes. So the way that I that, that one of the stipulations of the program, you know, part of the funding is that it's absolutely free. Always will be because uh, you've you've mentioned before. You know, there are a lot of issues around access and privilege, and I want this to be free for everybody. Um, I want it to be for parents as as well at home. So as a dietitian, if you've got um, a, a 
picky picky eating client, you can suggest to the parents that maybe they listen to Nomcast or maybe they um, send the Phenomenon link to the teacher or that they do a little bit of remote learning from home and look at the videos and, and show them, you know, and, and look at some of the lesson plans. So the teacher guidebook is a really good thing to look at, even if you're not a teacher, just to kind of see the methodology behind it and the pedagogy behind mm. it. So, you know, I can't stress enough. It is 100% free. It's accessible on the phenomenon.com.au website, but it's also going to be very soon on ABC Education. Oh, so it'll cool. be even more accessible you know so it's, yeah. it's going gangbusters we might be changing the name so you know find me I like the name I, know, I like the name too but you know one thing every, just like my surname phenomenon is really hard for people to say and it's even harder for Google to recognize so we didn't yeah. think about that we thought we were being really clever but every time Google says did you mean phenomenon and yeah. it's like no I did not mean phenomenon <laughs> stop doing that so we might yeah we might change the name but just come to me Alice in frames and you'll be able to click out to whatever and mm. I really do hope that everybody checks it out and mm -hmm. it's just it's my gift to the world. And it's not just me. At, at its peak, we had upwards of 60 people working on this project. You know, wow. across development, production, curriculum. We've got an incredible curriculum specialist who works um, across, you know, she helped curriculum align the Kitchen Garden Foundation um, program. So she's done the same for us and, and we're continuing it. So actually, I should tell you very excitingly, we have some more episodes coming out. So we've got a webisode coming mm. out and we've got some more Nomcast episodes coming out and it's all around food and mood. So oh, that's great. Yeah, that's very really timely. Cool. Very yeah. timely. And I think not only is it timely for, you know, for COVID, but I think there's so much research coming out around the gut brain connection and around how, um, you know, there's incredible work coming out of, I remember I saw it a few years ago at the um, dietitians conference, um, the Deacon um, food uh, and mood. Exactly, yeah. at the Food and Mood Centre talking about the incredible results that they'd seen. You yeah. know, so we, the thing that I'm most excited about is the access that I have to so many different um, facets of this food landscape and this food media landscape. And in my mind, what I can do is I can start to put the pieces together like a little jigsaw in my mind and then how amazing that I have this platform that I'm afforded that I can actually communicate that that information and that knowledge so uh, just good times good times ahead <laughs> yes and I have yeah. to say as well um so your podcast it's nomcast right nomcast yeah that's right. I love yeah. listening to your voice it's so you have such a delicious voice on the podcast <laughs> oh, that's and it's so really good. I'm so glad and it's really fascinating because um, you dive into a lot of food history on the podcast, don't you? Yes, yes. As a history teacher, I was never not going to do that. Um, yeah, and sure. again, you know, it's an, again, it's applying the methodology of um, exposure, which doesn't necessarily have to be hand to mouth. Exposure can just be learning more about something to the point where you're curious enough to try it for yourself. Um, we'll we'll put the links to Phenomenon and um, uh, Nomcast in our show notes as well, so that you. you can check that out. That's awesome. awesome. Right. Um, okay, Alice. I'm sure you get this question a lot. I have to ask about your experience with MasterChef because <laughs> a lot of our audience are huge MasterChef fans. So yes. Um, yes, please tell us about the experience and and what did you learn while you were on the show. Uh, well, what did I learn? So MasterChef for me was very much, I learned a lot about myself. 
um, I certainly learned a lot about cooking, but I also learned about myself and, and what my kind of priorities are in my life. Because one of the things that you don't really think about is how much you're shaped by the people surrounding you, you know, and you're the product of what do they say? The five people mm-hmm. that you spend the most time with, right? So at that time, um, I was, believe it or not, I was crossfitting every day. I was a hashtag clean eating. I was like uh, the picture of health, like beaming out of me. I remember just before I went on MasterChef my, for my birthday, my year eight girls got themselves an ice cream cake and got me a tub of yogurt. Like I was a, I was a health freak. And, um, and so they, um, on the show, they cast you as, uh, as, uh, as an archetype, I suppose, or as a demographic. So I was that person. And then I was surrounded by 23 people that were as different to me as possible because that's what casting does, right? But the difference with MasterChef is that then you are like Big Brother, locked in a house uh, for months. So this was a sort of six, seven-month process. And so in that time, you know, I'm a morning person, so I'd get up in the morning and I'd be like, hey, life, it's great. And there would be people that were just like, can you just not talk? Can you just shut up? And um, Or, you know, I'd be cooking my weird stuff. There were were people that I connected with, you know, in in the stuff that they were cooking. But also I think, so what it did, I'll tell you what it did, is that it buffed out some of my edges and it took me to my edge in order for me to find my centre, which is invaluable because it gave me the strongest sense of who I am and what I stand for. And so, you know, I, um, I no longer CrossFit every day and I no longer hashtag clean eat. Like I literally, I had a blog. I had a practically paleo blog. This was like <laughs> over it. Like and you've realised you don't day. need that in your life I don't anymore. need that in my life. No, I don't need that kind of um, regiment or um, restriction. I, so I think that but in, in having that experience, I am much more able to empathise with people that are coming from that place mm. and, and that's cool, you know. Uh, there's no way that I could possibly hashtag clean eat and be a restaurant critic. It's like actually impossible. And I have to say um, I, I never felt better um, like the, uh, I never felt better than when I was doing that much exercise and, and doing and, and eating, you know, a really like fully nutrient dense diet, but it was consuming me. It was all consuming. Yeah. But I guess when you're spending all that time with people who are just like you, um, fit. <laughs> and we would have, <laughs> like, I, remember I, cooked a, I cooked a pizza. Yeah, like we were really into it. We loved it. Um, But I'm much more, I'm much more loosey goosey now about about Mm -hmm. the way that I eat, and I think I'm much more comfortable in that place, and and I can reach a lot more people in that place because I actually, I think, um, in being so regimented, I was also very rigid um, Mm -hmm. in in my kind of understanding of food, but also in my judgment of people, and like that's not a good place. That's not a good place Mm -hmm. to to come to try and help people from. So mm-hmm. I'm way beyond being judgy. That's <laughs> like, but, um, and, and, you know, one of the kind of places, oh man, I'm moving so far away from MasterChef, aren't I? MasterChef was great. <laughs> so, 
is it I have to ask you is it yeah, true that um is it true that one like one hour show actually takes days to shoot oh, and that yeah. they're they're panning and they're doing all these different angled but, shots of the food but you won't ever get the, the quality of MasterChef there's nothing else like it on television because of the production values so it's actually the magic of television has to be there because that's how you get the best quality TV and I think that's part of the appeal of MasterChef is that they make the food look so good and the only way that that can happen so you've got two choices right I've shot enough TV shows to know this right you've got two choices you can either eat the food fresh or you can shoot the food fresh. You can't do both. <laughs> so, uh, yes. so, you know, um, the the reason, like there's a very good reason why the food that you see the judges taste in those tastings is cold, and that's because it's had to be filmed while it was beautiful and glossy and hot, and then it's had to sit around until they reset the cameras and do all those various things. And so, of course, they're tasting it cold, but they've already, they've already tasted it fresh because if you're smart enough, then you've made a second dish for them to taste off camera um, for when they're walking around or they've tasted all of the elements. They already kind of have an idea of what you are presenting to them. So <clears throat> that's just part of the magic of that show. But it's, it kind of teaches you to cook in a different way. And I think that actually... Um, one thing that was thrown into stark relief for me with this season of MasterChef is that I don't think that we necessarily should be encouraging Australians or um, anyone, the show is watched and loved, beloved by so many people in the world, um, to be just using the tiniest bit of carrot or, you know, it's, a, it's not, I think that it's time to, and they did this with certain challenges, but it's time to rethink the aspirational element of programs like that. So, you know, what are we trying to say to the general public and particularly kids because kids love watching programs like that? How do we encourage people to think about food waste, to think about ugly food, to think about family food through programs like that? Mm. So did you did you think that maybe you were able to refine your style and your in a way, your branding as a as a as a cook and an author <laughs> through that experience. Yeah, I think so. I think that a lot of that. Um, actually, looking back, I cooked a lot with veg. That was some of my most successful dishes were my mm. veg uh, vegetable heavy dishes. Um, but it was also the time that I spent with people in the house, learning from them. There was one cook in particular, Deb, who was um, <clears throat> she had an amazing way with lemon and fennel. <laughs> and, oh, and Mediterranean flavors, yeah, olive oil. You'd, you would love mm. that, uh, Deb. So she taught me to, um, for example, pour boiling water over prunes and spices, and overnight you have softened prunes to put onto your porridge that mm. are like sweet and delicious. I think that's um, you know something that I'll always think of when I when I cook when I cook that. Mm. Deb, yeah, Deb. <laughs> okay, so Alice. What is the funniest or weirdest thing or best moment that has happened to you in your career? It sounds like you've had lots of really um, incredible moments. Oh, man. Um, I think some of the most incredible, most kind of like pinch me moments have been in one place in particular, um, and that's Margaret River in Western Australia. Um, There's a food festival that happens there called Gourmet Escape, and it brings together some of the best chefs in the world. And um, I, over my sort of five, six years of doing it, have had um, just the most hilarious, interesting, exciting experiences with top Michelin star chefs, with, you know, celebrity chefs and home home 
what would you call them? House, house names, house names, like household names, household names yeah. like Rick Stein, you know, like, like Nigella, um, like Heston and everyone's, it's kind of like a conference for the, for our side. So everyone's kind of sharing ideas and experiences. And I'm trying to think of one particular funny moment. Um, I don't know whether it be, you know, playing table tennis with Heston or whether it be, um, dancing up a storm with Nigella or, you know, whether it be, um, there was one event actually, um, Nick and I were, I didn't have anything on that night. Nick and I were just sort of napping in the afternoon after frolicking on the beach. And I got a phone call saying, um, one of the, um, presenters is not well. Can you be ready in 20 minutes? Rick Stein doesn't have a host for this evening for his dinner. And I was like, yes, shot bolt upright, got changed, got dressed. And that was one of the most magical, magical evenings of um, reflection. And it was a dinner with Rick and his son, Jack Stein, and um, the people that were lucky enough to get that, you know, that dinner sold out instantly, obviously. And I was able to get some incredible kind of stories through Rick and and, um, learn some incredible stuff and sit next to him and chat to him about fish and that's someone you know the people at the top at that level are still learning they don't think that they're Mm -hmm. finished right so he was you know always had an ear out to oh tell me more about scampi or whatever it is so that was really cool as well yeah um okay you have to tell us about your food superpower because i think dietitians will be very impressed yeah well my food do you know my food superpower i do i i listened to a couple of other interviews with you but i'm I'm gonna leave it to you (laughs) to describe i love it so my i am a fruit whisperer and vegetable whisperer so i can tell when a fruit or vegetable is ripe. And obviously that comes through knowledge, but it also is an innate, I have a really strong sense of smell. Um, I am, both Nick and I, we did our, um, we had our, um, um, we had our genomic wellness profiles mapped and tested and we're both super tasters. Um, so, you know, our daughter's very much a super taster, but um, in, in doing that, you know, like I can, my olfactory system is honed mm. to sniffing out the best fruit and veg. So, wow. and I can even, so on MasterChef, there was a challenge where I needed to pick a capsicum out of a bag to be on a team and they had red, green and yellow capsicums. And I knew what shape and texture the yellow capsicum needed to be. And I picked it out because <laughs> I wanted to be on the yellow team. And everyone was just like mind blown. You should have seen the judges' faces. How did you do that? Yeah, I did it because I'm the fruit whisperer. That's how. (laughs) So when you go to the market, instead of fondling the avocados, are you there like sniffing them? Is that how that works? I don't sniff avocados. So avocados, um, and I have to say, do not fondle. Do not put the avocados down. You need to very gently tweak the top. Don't touch the bulbous bottom. Tweak the top. And if it's, you know, like it's like, it's like a steak. So if it feels, you know, slightly tender, take that avocado and you touch it, you bought it. You know, there's enough mm. bruised avocados in our yes, lives. Um, but, but when it comes to sniffing, there's a lot of stuff you can sniff. So carrots, for example, have a really natural, sweet aroma. Mm. Tomatoes, the truss, obviously. Cucumbers smell, um, they smell, uh, how would you describe it? They smell like a gin and tonic, like a, like a Hendrix, like... <laughs> like that herbaceous um, freshness straight into your nostrils. I'll and agree if, with that. I'm oh, a gin absolutely. fan, so I'll yes, agree with you that. Get yeah. it. <laughs> so anytime, anytime that you can walk past something and you can smell it from a distance, chances are you need to buy whatever it is that you've just mm-hmm. smelled because your body's also craving it. 
You know, that's the Mm. other thing, coming back to taste and nutrition. Give it to yourself. (laughs) You deserve it. I have a, a sneaky suspicion dietitians are really going to enjoy those hacks, particularly the avocado one, because I think we're all annoyed at the excessive oh, fun, fundling happening. Put down. Put the avocado down. I give people side eye when I see them doing it. Yeah. I've got a whole article about it. You should link to that article. It's a oh, I'd love article. to. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> avocado do's and don'ts. Oh, cool. Very good. Yes. Very handy. Very. Yeah. Pun intended. <laughs> So, Alice, it sounds like you've had a lot of incredible experiences in your career. Yes. What's next for you? (laughs) Ah, good question. Well, I had a TV show greenlit um, that has had to be shelved because it was literally visiting people in their homes (laughs) to help them a bit like, you know, like a super nanny vibe um, with food. So that's cool. Um, So some more TV stuff definitely. I'm already thinking about book two. Um, uh, well, book three, I should say, but book two for grown-ups, And I want it to be something around um, how you might like to, um, what else you can do with what you've cooked, I suppose, is a good way to describe it. You know, the sort of food that I cook on, on my socials where it's yeah. one thing today and then it's another thing tomorrow, I think that's the future of cooking really because I get people messaging me all the time saying, can I freeze this? Can I put this in the fridge? What can I do with this tomorrow? Um, we need to make food that is worth people's time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, spending more time with my family, that'll be great. So as part of writing the book, which was such an undertaking, when I committed to it, I didn't sort of think about what 500 pages looked like as like work. Um, <laughs> and I'm not a homework fan, so I'm pretty proud of myself that I managed it. But my husband um, looked after um, our now 16-month-old. You know, he was her primary carer, so... Mm. We'd wake up in the morning, he would take her for a walk while I did my yoga and then I would be at my desk and the only time that I'd leave my desk was when she needed a feed. So it'd be like, (laughs) you know, I'd be down deep in the hole writing and then she'd be like, ah. (laughs) <laughs> surface back sometimes up. <laughs> exactly surface back up. sometimes I'd feed her at the computer <laughs> but that's um that's something that's very natural I think comes very naturally to me because my mum wrote her PhD with my brother as a toddler mm-hmm. on her lap so it's just a you know come from a long generation a long long line of women who um just get it done <laughs> yeah well that's very inspiring because there's a lot of um working women who have young children who listen to this podcast and I'm sure they know very well what that feels like. The struggle is real, but it's also so rewarding. And I think I'm also driven by the fact that she sees that of me and I hope that that motivates her to, you know, aim, aim to get the most out of her life too. She's a cutie. I was Sorry. lucky enough to meet her a little earlier. And yes, <laughs> yeah. for most people, she's just the back of her head. So yeah, you've, you've got to see her face. So, a, so I actually pleasure. got to meet her. I feel exactly. very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, so the book, just remind us, that comes out on the 3rd of November. Is that right? It does. It does come out on the 3rd of November, but you can pre-order as well. So um, you can pre-order and I think there's there might even be a discount and you might even get a signed copy so yeah Ooh. check out um we can pop a link for everyone uh, but there's also if you go to my socials at alice in frames i've put the links everywhere just splashed mm. it everywhere because it's been not not only my own hard work but it's been such an incredible team around the book and and i think that it's a book that is going to stand the test of time it's going to be the sort of book that you want to gift people not just for christmas but for their you know engagements for weddings for birthdays so i can't wait to see what you cook out of it <laughs> 
And um, yeah, actually, having said that, I've created a recipe rolodex on the phenom- on the oh, on the in praise of veg Instagram. So it's just in praise of veg on Insta. And um, once people start sending me examples of what they've cooked from the book, I can put those up as part of the recipe Rolodex in the highlights and talk about, you know, some of the things that people change, some of the substitutions, so um, some of the kind of hacks that they've come across, some of the notes, just so that we can crowdsource cooking better. Yes. And that's the (laughs) authentic part of it as well. I'm guessing you don't expect us to make it look like exactly how it looks in the book. It can be our own version. No way, no way. And, And then the more shortcuts and hacks you take, the prouder of you I will be. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love the cover, I have to say. I'm a very visual person and the cover is just beautiful. I know right. it's 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 genius content inside it. The cover just is the cherry on the top for me. Yeah. Well, you can definitely judge this book by its cover. That's okay. for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, congrats again, Alice, on the, on the book. I'm so excited to get stuck into it. And I know a lot of dietitians will really embrace it and, um, and the message of making veg the hero of our dish. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. That's the that's the preach emoji that I just put out a million times. (laughs) And um, you know, whether you're vegetarian or veg curious, you know, there are some dishes in this book that have, you know, a little bit of smoked trout or um, you know, a little bit of bacon here and there. But the point is that there are always substitutions for people that want to go the full veg and everybody can afford to eat more veg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's very timely right now as well with, with sort of plant-based diets becoming 100%. quite a trend and just right. yeah, leaning into that message. Yeah. Um, and so for our listeners, you need to follow Alice on Instagram. It's at Alice and Frames and you do some awesome cooking videos and they're, most of them or some of them are in slow-mo, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Because that's a really fun scene, Brock fly out of a pan in slow-mo. <laughs> yeah, I've got to say that sort of, um, yeah, that's for the true food lovers, right? That sort of slow-mo content, that's that's true food porn for me. Watching something, you know, an egg ooze out of its little pouch or, yeah, watching Brock fly all over the, the cooktop, that's, that's my special brand of Insta story, that's for sure. <laughs> I love that. Awesome. I feel like we could talk for another hour, Alice, but uh, we will wrap it up. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, Kate. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks again. Um, I have really enjoyed this morning. I just, I'm in awe of the work that, um, that you've done. I'm in awe of uh, your mission to make vegetables cool again. And uh, I've just really enjoyed learning more about you and all your incredible, um, your incredible journey that you've been on and your stories. You're a great storyteller. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very kind. (laughs) Thanks, Alice. As you can probably tell, we are huge fans of Alice here at Dietitian Connection, and we're excited to give you the chance to win one of two prizes, a copy of In Praise of Veg and a 30-minute Zoom chat with Alice, Plus, the runner-up gets a copy of In Praise of Veg. To win, simply tell us in less than 25 words why you need In Praise of Veg in your book collection. Submit your responses on our Instagram post or within our Facebook group. The competition closes on the 30th of November 2020. You can see all the links and details in our show notes. Speaking of show notes, to get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. 
And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button. So that's it from me. Thank you again for listening, wherever in the world you're tuning in from. Take care.